Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we have a special guest in our studio. We have Professor Francis Green from University of Edinburgh. Welcome. Thank you. We have invited you because you are a professor of entrepreneurship and that's quite rare, I think. I think it is fairly rare, but most business schools in the UK have a professor of entrepreneurship or several professors of entrepreneurship. It may be less prevalent in New Zealand. And when I met you a couple of weeks ago, we had an initial conversation about your work. I found that really interesting and I've invited you to share that with our audience on the podcast and that's why you're here. But maybe to start with, how does one become a professor of entrepreneurship? I've had a look at your CV and you've had numerous positions, of course, as a professor of entrepreneurship and visiting positions, University of Vienna, Mannheim, Waikato, Mannheim again, Swinburne in Australia. But you got into this, actually, I was surprised to find out through studying for a German degree, even. A German degree? What German degree? You've got a certificate in German, it says on your CV. Yes, I, I did, when I was much younger, a course from the Goethe Institute to learn German. Unfortunately, that was a considerable number of years ago, and my German has deteriorated quite badly. And studying German scared you so much of the language that you went into <laughs> entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was doing an MPhil in economic history, right. uh, Masters of Philosophy in Economic History. And then uh, at the same time, I did a, a German certificate. So just to get this right, by background, you are a historian or an economist or both? A bit of both, I would say. Yeah, so a person who's come into entrepreneurship through serendipity. There is a certain level of entrepreneurship in my background and in some of the work experiences I've had, but I fell into entrepreneurship as an academic study. What is the bit of entrepreneurship in your background? It's mostly my family, family businesses that had, you know, an entrepreneurial bent. Right. Now... Let's talk a bit about entrepreneurship in economics. Okay. There is a famous quote by George W. Bush. I'm not even sure whether it's true. And he said, the French don't have a word for entrepreneur. Well, that may be true or not. <laughs> and it is a French word. But certainly in economics, entrepreneurship is a bit of an alien concept, at least in neoclassical economics. Is that right? I think that's fair to say. Neoclassical economics is valuable because it points out that people have a profit motive, they have a utility, they, they look for benefits. And that's valuable, I think, for understanding some parts of human behavior. Where it's less useful, because it's an abstraction, is dealing with uncertainty, uh, error, mistakes, subjectivity in a sense. And it doesn't really give a strong role to the entrepreneur. There's no real entrepreneur there who who dynamically changes things. Well, entrepreneurs don't really exist in neoclassical economics. I mean, if I'm exaggerating just a little bit, you have supply curves, you have demand curves, somewhere they intersect. That's where the price and the quantity is found. But there are no people in there. There are no people actually driving any of this. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that it's an abstraction. If you were unkind to neoclassical Economics, you would say it was a fairly bland world. In some respects, you might even say dystopian world because it doesn't really give human agency the power that it should have because it's people that make changes. 
it's not supply curves, it's not demand curves, and and so it it doesn't really capture what's going on in developed economies or even in underdeveloped economies. And it wasn't always like that in economics. I mean, another Scotsman, Adam Smith, talks a lot about people. Yes. And, and in the wealth of nations, you can find all sorts of entrepreneurial stories. Yes. Yes. But somehow economics in the 19th century took a turn, formalized, became became more mathematical. Yes. And in the process of doing that, becoming more precise, it actually lost some part of the foundation, really, of economics. I think that's fair, Oliver. And ever since, I'm aware there have been attempts to reintroduce people into economic modeling. Yes. And maybe you can just talk us through that. I mean, from my studies, I remember there were Schumpeter, of course, as the great theorist of entrepreneurship. There is my great hero, Israel Kurzner. There is Ludwig von Mises with his Homo Agens. There are Hayek we could probably mention as well. Yes. So there are different ways of trying to get people back into our models. Yes. How did you get to that? I mean, you studied economics and economic history. At what stage did you realize, actually, we need to bring people back into the models? Because I think there's a fundamental lack in neoclassical models. And I think the inspiration, I think the inspiration for people, you can look at it in through the work of two people. One is Israel Kirtzner, and the other one is Joseph Schumpeter that you've already mentioned. Broadly speaking, the, they, they come from a, a shared intellectual history, which is based in Austrian economics. But if we talk about Israel Kirtzner first, what I would say is that he deliberately tried to introduce people, the entrepreneur, back into economics. And that was really valuable. And one of the core things that he had to say was about entrepreneurial alertness, that some people in society see opportunities and they see those opportunities and they act on those opportunities. So that's really quite important to him, that as a fundamental concept. And he doesn't see that it's all ordered. He sees that things are uncertain, things are people make mistakes, they have errors, they're sometimes ignorant. And what he's trying to say is, well, what drives people to do things? And alongside entrepreneurial alertness, he's also talking about the profit motive and that people act in often in their own best interests for Kersner and achieve as much as they can. And in that way, it's socially productive way of enhancing the wealth of that individual and thereby the wealth of others. I must admit, when I first heard about Kurtzner and alertness and then arbitrage, another term yes. that often gets mentioned in the context of Kurtzner, I thought this was a bit esoteric. And that was when I studied it as a young student. But that was probably because it wasn't properly explained. Because once you really think this through, it is all around us, this kind of alertness, this kind of arbitrage, and not even for people who would consider themselves entrepreneurs. You you go to school, you realize that you have certain skills and talents, and then you realize, actually, I can use them for something. And basically, that makes you an entrepreneur in this Kurtznerian sense. Everybody has, according to Kurtzner, as far as I can see, the potential to be an entrepreneur. They can realize opportunities. They can see where things... For example, arbitrage is one version of it is there's a price that is high here 
and there's a price that is low here. If I can bring that market into equilibrium, into unity, so that things are together, I can make a profit and therefore help people and help myself. And it could even mean discovering that you have a certain ability that nobody else has. Correct, yes. So that was Kurtzner. And Kurtzner is a professor of economics at New York University. But the other person that most people would probably associate with entrepreneurship is, of course, Schumpeter, creative destruction. And he was about 30, 40 years really before Kurtzner appeared on the scene. Well, Schumpeter is probably the major figure in entrepreneurship studies. He was, in my view, interested in economic history. And he was interested in how things change. And Kersner was more interested in how we bring things into equilibrium. And what Schumpeter was interested in was how things break apart, in a sense, split away so that we see new movements in society and new, the introduction of new technology. And he was particularly interested in, you know, the changes brought about by the railways, for example. And so what he was trying to explain was what happens in society when we get some new innovations and he came up with this famous phrase which is called creative destruction and what he was basically saying is yes when we get a new technology that may be the railways it may be automotives it may be personal computers it may be even generative ai and what that leads to is new ways and potentially better ways of doing things so there are two parts to this Schumpeterian yes. vision. Yes. There is the creativity bit. And, and, there's, a, the and there's a destructive the bit. The destructive bit. So let me give you an example of the destruction bit. Germany, for example, has a very strong automotive sector with lots of engine-making uh, facilities. They're very competent at making cars. If you have electric vehicles, however... There is less need for an engine or engine particular bits of that engine. And so they are destroyed. So that's the destructive bit. And if we go back to the railways, yes, we saw economic change through the railways, but we also lost a lot of the established ways of doing things. And that was usually through the horse. And so people who looked after horses like ostlers and all the places where they you had to change horses, they all went. So there was a destructive bit to that particular aspect. So when you take Schumpeter and Kurtzner together, these are two sides of the same coin? Well, I think that if I look at Kurtzner, what I see is, in ideological terms, a much more free market approach to understanding entrepreneurship and that we should try and enhance and liberate individuals so that they could achieve their potential through the market. So that they can become Schumpeterian entrepreneurs. Well, yes. The point about Schumpeter, which is also quite important to remember from his economic history, is he started off and where the entrepreneur was really important was is that there was what he called a swarm, a large number of entrepreneurs trying to affect a particular change. So if you look at the personal computing industry, you can see a group of people who made changes. It wasn't just Bill Gates. There was a whole bunch of people like Michael Dell and various other people who made those changes. And what he was describing is, is these people, independently almost, what they're trying to do is to affect change, and that has destructive elements. So 
that was his original thesis. Schumpeter was then also quite skeptical about the viability long term of capitalism. Correct, correct. But I think from my perspective, what I see is that he then changed his mind. He sort of had what this entrepreneurial vision of how people creatively destroy. And then he changed his mind and suggested that actually innovation, research and development became what is called routinized. It became matter of fact. It was capable of industrial application and rigor. And so the classic example of that is Menlo Park in the United States, where you almost had a factory of innovation and research and development. And you can see that until recently in the pharmaceutical industry, they had large complexes where they did research and development and innovation. And my view is that what Schumpeter was really talking about was is that that side of almost corporate capitalism, if you want, replaced the entrepreneurial function. And it became much more something that large businesses do. So when I look at Kurtzner, I see a much more free market approach to understanding entrepreneurship and that everybody can do it. And whereas when I see the later Schumpeter, not the earlier Schumpeter, where he said entrepreneurs are really bold, dynamic, they're almost Nietzschean in their abilities, he basically said later on that that wasn't the case. We really had a corporate capitalism and that was what drove economic progress as far as he could see towards the latter part of his life. I want to get back to that a little bit later, whether corporates are actually entrepreneurial or whether in some cases corporatism actually works against entrepreneurial spirit. But I would like to stay for just a bit longer in the space of theory. So you've had these developments with Schumpeter, Kurtzner and others trying to reintroduce people into economics and yet at the same time, especially in the last 20, 30 years, economics has become even more mathematical, even more econometric. How does that work? Or does that field of entrepreneurship research that you are working in feel nowadays more like a part of sociology rather than economics? I think it is a bit more sociological now. I think what I work in a management school, and so we're interested in how people behave and what causes them to behave in a particular way. We may have some models and we may have some theories, but usually they're abstractions from neoclassical or mathematical or abstractions. They're not really centered around neoclassical approaches. But do you and your colleagues in entrepreneurship studies feed into what your economics colleagues do? I think there's a big divide now between what economics does and what management skills do. There are some people like Bloom and various other people who are economists who've made major impacts. So he's looked, for example, at why management matters, what is the impact of regulation. These things are rooted in economics, Mm. but what they're trying to do is to apply that. And one of the issues when you look at economics as a discipline is you might consider that it's too abstract, too far from reality, to, you know, doesn't really take into account the human in all of this. I'm asking for 
really personal interest reasons because I studied economic science, singular, not sciences, at the University of Bochum. It's what was called in German Wirtschaftswissenschaft. Yes. And the singular was the program of that faculty because they, in the 1960s, started a new faculty with a singular noun economic science and the idea was to integrate management studies and economics into one single faculty. I mean, you usually have to take some economics classes when you're doing management and vice versa. But the idea behind the model of the university that I went to was to integrate them and to study both in parallel until you reach master's level. And that was a nice idea in the 1960s. I studied there in the 1990s. And even at that time, it felt like the two parts of the faculty were not really united. So you had the management professors on the one hand, and then you had the economics professors on the other. And occasionally they probably met when they had to, <laughs> but otherwise they were living very separate lives. And I found this as a student quite interesting and actually quite concerning because I thought in a way they should be the same size of a single coin. So whatever happens in microeconomics or in macroeconomics would have some kind of resemblance or equivalence on the other side because it is actually the companies, the people driving things. And yet, strangely enough, these people didn't talk to each other. Well, I think uh, economics is valuable because it gives you some tools, some valuable tools, and it gives you a framework for understanding things. And we use that in management quite a lot to help us understand things. But I think that, as you've just said, that there is a difference. Whereas what I'm really interested in is what makes entrepreneurs tick, why they do various things. And some of that may be because they're interested in making money, as the neoclassical sort of paradigm would suggest. But often what you find is it's much more sociological. So some people set up in business not for to make a profit, but because they want to make a difference to society. Yeah. Or if you ask certain people, are you driven principally by money? And they might say, money is important, but it's not the reason why I get out of bed in the morning and do what I've, you know, a 15-hour day or, you know, whatever they have to. So I think there is, there is that divide now between management and economics. Perhaps to just exemplify this a bit more for our listeners who might not be economists, when you think of advertising, for example, as an entrepreneur, you would think, well, this is a way in which I can grow my business and which I can hopefully discover what new products I can market successfully. And therefore, to advertise is part of the market process. It's part of being an entrepreneur. And when you then flip over to the economic side and you go into this strict neoclassical model where we've got perfect information, advertising doesn't exist. And if it happens, it's probably wasteful. And so you, you've got this really big conflict between management on the one hand and economics on the other, and you can't reconcile them anymore. That's probably accurate, I think. One of the things I try to say to people who are setting up a business is, okay, you've got a great product or you've got a great service, but how are you going to get to revenue? And that is one of the fundamental questions that I think entrepreneurs need to ask themselves who are embarking on this startup process. It's all very well having this idea. It's all very well collecting resources to make that idea a reality. 
Well, how are you actually going to get a customer? Yep. Who is your customer? And as you say, those are the sort of questions that economics, unfortunately, doesn't tend to answer these days as well as it could do. So let's talk about your practical work and research then as a professor of entrepreneurship. What are the main questions you are trying to answer? Or are you actually also partly a service provider to entrepreneurs trying to tell them how to be more successful? I am partly a service provider. One of the things I did when I was in Scotland was to set up the Scale Up initiative, which was a program to help people who are already in business to grow their business. So Scale Up means fast growth businesses. So what I was trying to do is to leverage the knowledge within universities and the evidence within universities to actually help people understand the, the fast growth process and not feel so alone, if anything else. Because what we tried to do was to bring fellow entrepreneurs onto the program so that people could have peer-to-peer -peer learning. So you're a very practical kind of academic. You're not the ivory tower professor sitting somewhere removed from markets. You're actually dealing with people on the ground. That's what I try to do. I have to be a professor, unfortunately, these days. You have to write these fairly esoteric papers in particular journals. And you're good at it. I've seen your publication record. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed it doing that. But actually what I'm more focused on these days is, is making a difference. And that is, I only have certain skills. I only have certain uh, knowledge. And so I would like to work alongside entrepreneurs. And the entrepreneurs are receptive to that. Broadly speaking, yes. There's always a minority of people who think that university people are too esoteric or too far removed from uh, from reality and they just want to talk about the theory of things. But I think increasingly there is a role in universities, um, amongst university people, to actually make a difference. So if I was on the continent of Europe, I would be classed as a civil servant. Mm-hmm. And as a civil servant, there, therefore, I, I would see my, my role is to help people to maximize whatever they're trying to do. And in this case, it's trying to maximize their ability to either grow their business or to start their business. It's a bit of a contradiction, at least at first sight, to have a civil servant help entrepreneurs. You would think, actually, from an entrepreneurship perspective, if there is this obvious gap in the market where entrepreneurs don't know what to do, Some entrepreneurs should actually spot this gap and actually offer these services. Uh, there is a lot of support that is offered. All developed economies, have, such as New Zealand, have incubation services. They have accelerator programs. They have government support. They have financial support, either from the private sector or the public sector. But what I'm trying to do is to look at the evidence and see where that evidence may or may not help them. So... I'll give you a classic example. There is a common myth that if you want a fast growth business, that it's got to be a high tech business. It's got to be R&D intensive and that you know it's got to have some fantastic new widget or some new way of, of producing a service and so that it's located in particular sectors. But actually, that's not what the evidence says. 
The evidence says is that it could be any sector of the economy. You just have to be better than your competitors. Yes, yes. And so, if w what's you, an example? So, uh, the classic example, which is a British example, is that if there's a company called Poundland in the UK, and basically what it's discount it does, stores. It's a discount store. Yeah. It takes stuff from China, and it's just a arbitrage function. <laughs> takes stuff from China, and it sells for a margin in the UK. Uh, up until recently, it was under a pound, and that business which is not terribly innovative, grew exponentially. So that, that would have been open to anyone who knows how to order from AliExpress. Yeah, so you could have set up the business by going to Alibaba, collecting a lot of resources and finding a way to sell that. And that's not particularly innovative or high tech. And so whatever the sector is, is that what we find is, is that there is a potential for growth, even in sectors that seem to be failing or to be dying, there are still opportunities for people there. Now, let's talk about government's activity in this field. I suspect Poundland would not have been a candidate for government support because government likes to go after these flashy projects. The government wouldn't necessarily support Poundland, yeah? I think that's And neither that. should they? No, nor should they, no. I think the traditional rationale for government intervention is a market failure argument. And what that basically says is that the, the government have done an analysis, they've looked at all the options, they've looked at what happens if we do nothing, And what happens if we do look at some options and what would happen if that's it? Because there is, they believe, a market failure. And then they follow the evidence and then they arrive at a solution. The unfortunate thing is, is that that's often not how it happens. Unfortunately, instead of evidence-based, market failure-based approaches to government intervention, what tends to happen is policy-based evidence and generally speaking that is that a particular minister or a particular group in society who have the support of the minister decide that is a policy and then they ask the civil servants to find the evidence to support that. We should probably clarify something for the non-economists among our listeners. Market failure has a very specific meaning in economics and it is not the meaning that some people who are not economists would take from the word. It's not market failure when the market doesn't produce what the minister doesn't like. Yes. Um, yes. It is a very clearly defined condition, actually, when markets really fail, when they can't bring supply and demand together for very specific reasons. It is one of the most misunderstood terms, I think, in economic policy. So a classic example of market failure is, say you've got a chemical producer, And unfortunately, they produce gases that are detrimental to society in one way or the, another. So what do you do with those gases? So if you leave it to the market, nothing will happen. We won't deal with the gases. But the government then may decide either to do one of two things. It may decide to regulate so that the chemical producer has to deal with that pollution in some respect, or it may tax them. Mm -hmm. and But that is obviously not what's happening when there's a lack of entrepreneurship. So it, it's probably quite hard to 
get to the position where the government decides to intervene in support of entrepreneurship on the basis of a market failure rationale? So one example of a market failure in entrepreneurship is to do with equity capital, risk capital. And that's usually provided by business angels or venture capitalists. And there is a lack of funding there for those individuals. And so the government may do a study where it tries to work out if there actually is an undersupply of this finance and then seek a corrective measure by having a particular scheme to address that. Another market failure is, for example, about do small businesses face restrictions in bank lending? So is it the case that some small businesses don't get the bank finance they deserve? And that may be because of government regulations in itself, mm -hmm. and it often is, or it may be that there's a genuine lack of appetite amongst particular banks or the banking sector to actually support small businesses in trying to develop their own business. And sometimes, for example, land use planning holds back entrepreneurs, so the government is actually at the source of the failure. That's potentially the case. What the government should be trying to do is, if it is regulating, it should be trying to be a smart regulator. Mm. So sometimes what government can do to promote entrepreneurship is just to get out of the way. That's often the case. There may be instances of particular market failure. What I'm pointing out is, is that sometimes those market failures are policy-based rather than evidence-based. So somebody thinks there's a problem when in fact there isn't a problem. But generally government, I think, and it goes back almost to the dawn of civilization. government has a role in making sure that institutions work, that the rule of law is there, that there are appropriate competition facilities so that people can export, can import without undue regulation, that the infrastructure is appropriate so that you have good roads, you have good railways or good interconnection. And that as I think it's important also that government has a role in, in supporting education. Indeed. And then, of course, we also have to remember that they are necessary and then there are sufficient conditions. So just stating that you have just identified a market failure doesn't mean it's going to work because there could well be a government failure as a result of that intervention. Correct. Correct. That's the case. I mean, in terms of education, I think government has a role of producing students who are as well able to contribute to that economy as possible. Mm -hmm. And if the government isn't doing that job very well, then that has long-term implications. And I think when I look at the international evidence, what I tend to see is, is that governments have too short-term a view on the policy framework that actually they should be thinking about what the country should look like in 10 to 15, 15 to 20 years' time, rather than just the here and now. And I think that's really quite important. Mm. Now, let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurs themselves. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about entrepreneurship as an idea, as a function, as a part of economics, hopefully. But let's talk about the people. I mean, when people hear the word entrepreneur, They probably think Bill Gates, they think Mark Zuckerberg, they think Elon Musk. 
What a lot of these entrepreneurs have in common is actually that they, at some stage, dropped out of university. Do you think it's necessary to fail at university to become a good entrepreneur? The short answer to that is no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I can be fairly definitive about that. There are examples of people who dropped out of university. And there's a guy called Peter Thiel, pronounce his name correctly. And he, I uh, think, was involved in PayPal. Yes. And he has a particular scheme where he says to very bright Americans, if you drop out of university, I'll give you a certain amount of money to pursue your startup dream. And so therefore, this myth has grown up that you need to drop out to be successful. When you actually look at the evidence, most of the people who have been successful tend to be people who went, well, if they've gone to university, not everybody does go to university, but if they do go to university, it's better to complete your degree in whatever it happens to be. And the explanation for that is, is because universities, unlike life, gives you some experiences and some what we call human capital. Human capital in this case means skills, talents, knowledge that you can apply. And it also tends to give you a social capital. And what I mean by that is you meet people at university who may be your friends, who may be able to contribute to, you know, if you're setting up a business, a common model is to set up with friends. It's not always the best model, yeah, but it's one way forward. At least uh, these are people you trust. Yes, yes, for a short time, if nothing else. Yeah, and that's important to start with. I think this idea that there's the solo entrepreneur who sets up their business on their own is another myth. But it's interesting you mention that because it's the image that we keep in our minds. When we hear entrepreneur, we think of the people I mentioned. We might think historically of John D. Rockefeller, Henry Ford, Vanderbilt. And these were solo people, we think. And some sort of heroes probably parachuted in from outer space. And then they appear and they create vast empires. But I think the reality is different. No it, entrepreneur works on his own. No. And so I'll give you an example. So the founder of Dropbox, whose name I can't quite remember, he went along to get some money from a venture capitalist. And the venture capitalist said, great business idea. I really believe in you. But until you get a partner who's got complementary skills, we are not going to fund you your business. And so I do think there are people who are dominant personalities, but even if they are, they still need a support network around them to achieve what they're trying to do. Because ultimately, entrepreneurship can be a very lonely, it's also quite stressful sort of existence. And so you do need people to help you either formally or informally. By the way, do you believe that there is something like an entrepreneurial gene Are some people biologically almost more tuned towards becoming entrepreneurs? I'm asking because I read about this some time ago and I've forgotten now where it was. Apparently there is something that genetically differentiates people who migrate from others. And there has been some research undertaken to show that the descendants of migrants tend to be more entrepreneurial in their well, new countries, I mean, the countries where they were born, but not their parents. And the idea was that if your parents are risk-taking enough to leave their countries, move somewhere else, then they might have some genetic predisposition that leads them towards entrepreneurship, or at least in their children's generation. Then, Okay, I think there's two things going on there. 
first is at what I would call a selection point. And what I mean by that is some people select to move to another country and some people don't. Yeah. And so generally speaking, what we find is that the people who emigrate to a, a new country, they have a little bit more oomph, a little bit more get up and go about them. Quite uh, literally. Quite, quite literally, quite literally. And so it tends to be the case that immigrants to a country, they've had to leave wherever they were, uh, whether that's for good reasons or bad reasons. And so they tend to be better motivated, better motivated to achieve things. And you can see that in many economies where you do see immigrants and they often come into entrepreneurship because there's a skills mismatch or because they are more individualistic, but they tend to gravitate to entrepreneurship. In some countries, they may do that because of negative barriers. They're denied an opportunity to fully participate in the labor force. Yeah, or they face persecution for all sorts of reasons. Yes, correctly, yes. correct. So that's one side of the argument. And then in terms of the genetics, there's been quite a lot of studies that have looked at the genetic basis to entrepreneurship. And perhaps the most famous study is to take twins. Mm -hmm. And what you've got is identical twins, and they are identical in all respects, obviously, but there are also twins that are only share 50% of their genetic component. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what was found was is, is that when they looked at these two groups, that for some individuals, in some respects, there was a predisposition to self-employment. And so there's always, of course, nature and nurture. Yes. But we can say that there are some people who are more entrepreneurial than others, <laughs> to a degree. What I was going to go on and say was, so there was this sense that there was a genetic disposition. So my question really is, can anyone theoretically be a Bill Gates? Or is that something that really only very few people have in them? I think an important aspect there is nurture. Mm. It's very difficult to be a Bill Gates in certain parts of the world where you're denied education. Sure or there aren't the facilities or the wherewithal or the government to be able to achieve. So for many people, they're denied that opportunity. In more developed economies, where they have good infrastructure and good institutions, then potentially you could see that. Hmm. Now, going back to a question we touched on earlier. So on the one hand, we have these entrepreneurial heroes we just mentioned and we leave the question aside how they become that hero and we also ignore the question of course that they will not be on their own but then you have the other extreme where we have the big corporate and some big corporates are enormously entrepreneurial they reinvent all the time they try new things they grow they develop new technologies but they don't do this with a single entrepreneur or the single dominant figure but they do it as a company And so in between, you have a massive well, spectrum, really, of entrepreneurship versions. My question to you is actually, from your research, which one is more prevalent? Which one's more likely? Is it more likely that you have real entrepreneurial decision-making, constantly evolving processes when there is this one dominant figure? Or is it more likely, in some cases, to come out of big, rather anonymous corporations? I think the evidence shows that large firms tend to spend more on R&D, 
do more innovation, produce more products to market. They don't necessarily have higher success rates. If you go back to your childhood and look at all the chocolate bars you ate and how many of them are still around, you know, in terms of new product innovations. So they do spend more money and that would tend to suggest that corporate entrepreneurship, which is, we call that a special word, we call that intrapreneurship. It's where a company decides to be entrepreneurial in a particular way. And they may do that by setting up a specialist subdivision that's different, has different routines, different organisational culture, or it may be that they are always trying to achieve that. So I think that large businesses are really quite important for innovation, for entrepreneurship. But I think the sweet spot for many economies is those businesses that are trying to grow in a very fast way. And I've called them scale-ups before. And those are the ones that each economy really wants because we've already got these large companies. What's the new thing? What's the, the different thing? And we need these swarm of new people to come along to grow really quite quickly because that gives productivity benefits, creates new jobs. And that's really quite important. So I would say, yes, you can see that corporate capitalism really does matter. And I think that the people who run their own business, they're really quite important for local communities. They're part of the fabric of communities. They're part of the tax base. And that's really important. But there's a bit in between where you want as many fast growth companies as you can in an economy, because that's going to lead to change in your economy. Mm -hmm. So to ask the question again, but phrase slightly differently, when you have a big company, is some um, big money involved and big money obviously can buy you a lot of R&D but can big money then buy you entrepreneurship? It depends on what sector you're in so to go back to the example I used before which is pharmaceuticals so pharmaceuticals used to be corporate capitalism you'd have large R&D facilities and you produce innovations you produce patents and you then produce things that you believe could sell in the last 30 years or so, that model's gone. And what you've seen is small firms take responsibility, take the risk for developing new products, new services. And essentially, the large pharmaceutical companies act as gatekeepers for that. I think in other industries, some of the more modern ones, such as fintech, you are seeing much more innovation and entrepreneurship being developed by small startup companies. And that's really quite important. But the challenge for many uh, fast growth businesses is, is that in some marketplaces, at least, there's this idea of a winner takes all. So if you go back to the internet, the start of the internet, there were multiple providers of search engines. And yep. now we just have Google. Yep. So it's a winner takes all market. But that process, that swarming effect is really quite important. What role does artificial intelligence play in all of this? I mean, it's obviously a field where a lot of entrepreneurs are currently extremely active. But does artificial intelligence then also change how entrepreneurship works? I think it will do. I think uh, we're only starting to see that, the beginnings of that at this moment in time, with the development of things like ChatGBT and various other 
models of this. It's it, not it's, just. It's, it's good at brainstorming. Yeah, <laughs> it's good at many, many things. And I think that is going to, as we go forward, have a transformative impact because it will increase business efficiency. It's not just an individual thing. It will increase that. It will change processes. And there will be quite a bit of creative destruction going on. So one of the examples of that perhaps is in higher education or in mm. education itself. If I wanted to write a series of lectures, I could get ChatGBT to do that within you know seconds or minutes and it could produce all sorts of materials for me and the students could use those. It can even help them with business ideas in validating or even coming up with these ideas. And so you can see that that could really help both the providers of academic services and also the people who use it. But you will also see destruction in terms of that. So one of the debates at the moment, and it's we're at the sharp end, believe it or not, it's unusual to say that, is academia is facing a, a profound challenge. So are we, for example, going to become much more of a consultancy service rather than a educational service as we go forward. And mm. you can see that in other ways of doing it. So if you're trying to improve your sales, then you may use chat boxes to sharpen your messages, personalize your messages to particular customers so that they they have a greater tendency to buy. Mm. Uh, There is one final challenge I wanted to ask you about, perhaps also in the context of AI and its future role. We know, I believe, from research that aging societies tend to be less entrepreneurial. I mean, that's obviously not true for the two of us. I mean, we are in our late 20s mentally. <laughs> <laughs> But generally speaking, and I think it is fair to say that aging societies, and I mean, we probably have to put this really into context. When you look at a country like Germany, for example, the median age that really separates the younger from the older half of society is now 50. So that's quite an old society. And these kinds of societies struggle to generate new ideas compared to societies where the median age is maybe just 25. So as our societies are in this process of aging to various degrees, will it become more difficult to have entrepreneurial or entrepreneurially minded societies in the future? I don't agree with that. I think that's quite, you know, pessimistic because I think if I look at sort of the statistics on who sets up in business, it's not somebody who's 25. Well, Zuckerberg was 19. Yeah, that, but he's exceptional. The average age is 42. Really? Yeah. That old? That old. and Almost as old as us. <laughs> no. <laughs> But I think older people tend to have, know a lot of people, mm -hmm. have a lot of experience, have some financial capital, and that really is often helpful. Mm -hmm. And if you're a young person, then even if you're a venture capitalist, then they tend to be much older or can be much older. So you need a mix of those, even with younger people. And also I would say that over the last 10, 15 years, Certainly, we've seen the rise of older people post-retirement going into entrepreneurship. And that may be because they want to fulfill a particular dream. Maybe even social entrepreneurship. Yes, exactly. 
but they may want to do something that they've never really done before and they may then grow that particular business so I think that I'm an optimist I think that yes we will have challenges as we age but I think that older people can make a really valuable contribution to that it's great you mentioned that you're an optimist because I was going to ask you a question to wrap up and ask you for an optimistic vision of entrepreneurship in the future. Where do you see entrepreneurship as a field of study develop? And how do you see entrepreneurship in our societies go as they are aging? And where's the future for entrepreneurship in countries like New Zealand or Scotland or Europe, America? Where is all of this going? And please leave us with an optimistic vision. <laughs> I think that if I'm optimistic about my particular field, that we will turn into a field that is even more applied, that does try to directly help entrepreneurs to understand the evidence, to bring them together in a safe space where they can meet other people and they can learn from each other and from us. So I'm optimistic that we could do that and perhaps generative AI might actually support that in terms of the entrepreneurship more generally, I think we've got to have entrepreneurship. We've got to have purpose-led entrepreneurship where people have a purpose behind what they're trying to do that. And for some people, that's about making money. But we're not going to deal with a climate change crisis or the aging population without individuals coming forward with smart ways of doing things. And I think that entrepreneurship offers that prospect like nothing else can yeah and so it's really important that whatever society you are that governments either step back and let them get on with that or actually support them in ways that they can but if we don't have entrepreneurship and going back to what we said at the start we won't be successful well then let's hope for this optimistic version of the future fueled inspired driven by entrepreneurs But for now, thank you for sharing your wisdom of entrepreneurship with us and your research. I found this a fascinating conversation. So thank you very much, Francis, for being on our podcast. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. And I hope you will tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.